0: And please take your Bibles with me this morning. Thank you, Sarah. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7 this morning. The old adage goes, it's one that perhaps you've seen several times, freedom is not free freedom is not free before i get too far into that this morning if you'd like an outline please raise your hand caleb will come around and get one of those for you in fact i have a shirt that has an eagle on it and it says freedom is not free with the wars that our country has been fighting uh, for the past 14 years now in fact Uh, The military shirts have been pretty popular and one of those shirts that's rather popular is that shirt, freedom, is not free. And you know it's true, that freedom comes at a cost, does it not? Freedom always comes at a cost. There is no such thing as free freedom. Freedom brings responsibility, does it not? As a country, the freedoms that we have bear with them particular responsibilities, and what we learned last week is that in, as believers, in our Christian life, the freedoms that we have in Christ, the reality that He has freed us from our sin, He has freed us from the flesh, bring with themselves responsibilities of their own. In fact, we learned last week that our bodies are not our own, our spirits are not our own, Our spirit and our body are God's. And we looked at that through the negative. We breached a little bit on the positive. That's because I got a little off track. But we we looked at this in the negative. That we are not to commit fornication. And the reason why we are not to commit fornication, the reason why we are not to have physical intimacy with a person outside of marriage, is because we are God's. We are His body and spirit. And because we are gods, we have no right, as believers, to do what we want with our bodies. We don't. Because our bodies are gods. And we looked at that from this prohibition against having physical intimacy outside of the the God-given bounds of marriage. This week we're going to look at the positive. Positive. We're going to look at that marriage relationship. We're going to go deeper into that marriage relationship. We talked last week about what it is to be married. um, The the qualifications for marriage. I touched on it. We're going to go deeper this week. We're going to go deeper into the freedoms that we have in marriage. And how those freedoms reconcile with the reality that we are God's entirely. In the final verses of 1 Corinthians 6, we looked at Paul focusing in on sexual immorality. He sought to impress upon the hearts of God's people that this sin is particularly offensive because we are physically giving ourselves to another when we have already given ourselves to God. So we are God's, and now we are taking that which is God's by right and we're giving it to someone who has no right to it. I was careful to note that there is one circumstance in life where our physical joining, physical intimacy with another person is not seen as spiritually incorrect or spiritual defilement. And that circumstance is when two people have entered into a lifelong union through marriage. This is the circumstance, and by two people, I mean one man and one woman. We'll talk about that a little bit more. When a man and a woman have entered into a lifelong vow, lifelong commitment through marriage. Now, where did I get this idea? It really wasn't found entirely in 1 Corinthians 6. We, we, it touched on it briefly, but I've, I got this idea from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 9. I got this idea from what we're going to be speaking on today. This is all one big long thought. It's an epistle. And so we're going to get deeper into this thought Today, See, the desire for physical intimacy with a member of the opposite gender is, if I may put it in a word, human. It is human. Physical intimacy is a natural desire. It's given to us by God in order to encourage the natural order of procreation so that fathers would have children who would have children who would have children so that this earth will continue God knew that we might very well have a likely propensity to snuff ourselves out, humans being what they are. And so God has given us this desire for physical intimacy for procreation. However, like everything in this world, our desire for physical intimacy has been twisted by our sin nature so that we are under constant temptation to satisfy that desire in ways that are not pleasing to God. Now, some of us are tempted more than others are in this area of physical intimacy. But there is, typically speaking, a desire in the heart of man. we'll see, as Paul continues teaching in 1 Corinthians 7, and even Jesus Christ has mentioned the same thing when he walked upon this earth, that there are those who find absolutely no problem resisting that temptation. And Paul's encouragement to them is, well then... Maybe you shouldn't marry. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to have the flexibility of ministry that you wouldn't have if you had a wife and a family that you need to take care of. And we'll talk about that more as the weeks go on. God has, because most of us aren't that way, in His goodness, provided a way for humans to fulfill their desire for physical intimacy without compromising his ability to be in full fellowship with God. And that's what we're going to talk about today. That mutual vow of lifelong commitment one to another in the bonds of marriage that comprises the divine means by which you and I can have physical intimacy and fulfill that need in our lives while still not falling out of fellowship with the Lord. Now, what we will also see is that outside of this lifelong commitment, physical in- intimacy with another is an offense to God's nature, to God's design, to God's will, and indeed to God's word as well. We'll be speaking for the next several weeks about marriage, about its opportunities, about its expectations, about its responsibilities, and about its limitations. And that will begin this morning. Chapter 7, verse 1, let's read the entire passage together, verses 1 through 9. I'll read, please follow along. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also, the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment. For I would that all men were even as myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. As we begin this morning in chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, two very important points must be made. First, Paul is writing to these men and women, believers, in an attempt to answer questions that were presented to him specifically in regard to marriage. We have no indication from the text that Paul intends to preach or to teach about every contingency of marriage or every situation as it would have arisen. I do draw your attention, however, to the cultural dynamics of the city of Corinth. We mentioned much earlier in the epistle that there were many in the city who were Greek by birth, Roman by birth. There were also many who were Jewish. The Gentiles by birth and culture in Corinth would have been um, one group, and there were many that were saved, and then there was the Jewish group by birth and culture, and there were many of them as well that got saved as we look into the book of Acts. Now, in Jewish culture, marriage is essential. In fact, in some Jewish writings, you would find that if a woman was not married by her early 20s, she was looked upon in Jewish culture as a a great sinner. There must be some great sin in her heart, in her life, that she is not married. Having seed, raising a family, this was the essence of what it meant to be a Jewish woman. Marriage was the essence of what it meant to, to be a part of that Jewish culture. Now, particularly in the Greek culture, this was very different. Corinth used to be the great capital of that region in Greece. It was now the capital of the Roman Empire for that region. There had been great philosophers that had taught in Corinth. Plato, Aristotle. These men were Greek philosophers several hundred years before the days of Jesus Christ. And they brought about a culture of learning for learning's sake. We're not just learning to discover, and we're not just learning to advance as a culture, we're learning for the sake of learning. For the joy of learning. And one of the things that they encouraged was complete celibacy. Denying anything that was based in emotion or need, and catering only to the mind. If it's not fulfilling some mental purpose, then you don't need it. And so in Greek culture, there had been this great moving away from marriage. And this assertion of independence, whereby all you need is you and your mental faculties. Read, study, learn, philosophy, reason, all of that stuff. Imagine with me, Paul, he goes to Corinth, people are getting saved, he goes to the Jews. The Jews don't really like him very much in Corinth, but there are still many that end up getting saved. As a matter of fact, two leaders of the synagogue in Corinth eventually get saved. And so these Jews get saved, and when he was rejected of the Jews, he went to the Gentiles, and many Gentiles get saved, and they're coming to church together. And these Jews are looking at these Gentiles and saying, You're, you need to get married. And these Gentiles are looking at these Jews and saying, no way. And there is a clashing of cultures here. And of course, we know all throughout the book of Corinthians, there's division among them. There's division. They are clashing and they are refusing to yield one to another. And they're, they're just, there's a lot of infighting. I remind you that this was the culture that Paul was writing to in order that you can understand the context with which he is trying to relay these truths about the Word of God and about marriage. Second thing I want you to remember as we step into these passages. We must remember that marriage at the time of the early church and particularly in a Greek province, in a Roman Empire, would have been very different from what we understand marriage to be today. Today, marriage is typically, at least in Western culture, it is conditioned upon love, whether that love is real or whether that love is perceived, right? You you marry a person because you love a person. A person doesn't naturally pursue a marriage where there's no romantic interest at all. There are plenty of people that I... Plenty of girls growing up I liked just fine, but... I didn't marry them. I married my wife because I fell in love with my wife. I didn't fall in love with those other girls. I fell in love with Sarah. We have a a great advantage in this regard. That we marry for love. Marriage was very different in that time and in that culture. Marriage was often arranged by the parents. Typically it involved two people that were near strangers. In fact, if Greek plays and if Greek literature are to be our guide in regard to that time period and uh, marriage, there was no such thing as love prior to marriage in that culture. They they didn't understand that concept of loving a person prior to marrying a person. That's not why you got married, typically. Don't let the movies fool you. (laughs) These folks didn't marry for love. They married because dad told them to marry. They married for convenience. They married for connections. They married for various reasons, but typically speaking, it was not for love. And so we need to translate these words a little bit differently in our minds as we understand the culture. You don't need, usually, to understand the culture to understand the Bible. There's a lot that you can learn from the Word of God through the teaching of the Holy Spirit, even if you don't fully understand the culture at hand. But it does help us. It gives us a flavor when we understand the culture. And this is one of those areas where that is indeed the case. So, as we approach these verses today with wisdom, we're seeking to draw out careful and contextual conclusions regarding both the purposes and responsibilities that accompany marriage. And as we do so, let's define the advantages that our particular culture has in this regard. You do not need to marry Women in this room, you do not need to marry to live. You could live your entire life. You can have opportunities. You won't, uh, in Jewish culture, oftentimes a woman doesn't get married. She, she is literally living off of her parents for her whole life. You don't even need to go and, and do that. You, you, thinking from a carnal perspective, this society would enable the women in this room to not marry and still succeed greatly. You can wait to marry. Society does not spurn those who would wait until a later season for marriage. And of course, you can marry for love. You don't need to hope that you'll win the marriage lottery and get a good guy or a good girl. You can wait and make the right choice. So you have some particular benefits that perhaps those in the the church of Corinth did not have as Paul was approaching this passage. Remember that as we go through these next several weeks. Try to translate what Paul is saying, and I'll try to help you do so from then till now, but also take the principles for what they are. So, let's dig in. Verse 1 continues, and it says, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Paul begins by saying, at least in our King James translation, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Literally, um, that's what it means. It's a literal and it's a good translation. There are a couple of translations out there, uh, more modern translations that will change this. They will interpret this phrase. The NIV and the ESV are, are notable ones that state this phrase in a very different way. They say it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And that's how those translations would, would carry this idea across. That's a fine idea. It's true, That's what Paul is saying. But it's not literally what Paul is saying. This word, touch, is a Greek word that literally means to touch. To touch. Outside of this passage, there is not one place in the Scriptures where it speaks of anything other than physical touching. And there is not one place where it has sexual undertones. When the woman with the issue of blood says, if I may but touch Christ's garment, I will be healed. That's this word. She went and she physically touched his garment and she was healed. She touched. The same word here. And so he is literally saying it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But you notice up there that I do qualify this statement because it begs the question, what does Paul mean here when he says it is good for a man not to touch a woman? I come up to one of the women in this room and I shake your hand. Is that a bad thing? Obviously, he can't say that that men and women should never have physical context. He is using this statement within the context of fleeing fornication. Before this statement, he says flee fornication. After this statement, he says to avoid fornication. And so we understand here he is speaking of something inappropriate, not simply physical context. Contact. So, what I believe this is saying, as we understand in its context, as we understand the word here, it's intended to imply any sort of intimate touching, anything that goes beyond just physical contact to physical intimacy. And Paul says, in regard to your question, it is good for a man not to have physical intimacy. With a woman, now, of course, this does not simply mean um, sexual relations. This can be far more broad. See, sexual relations is not a bad translation, except that I believe it 's a little limiting. I believe this should go beyond simply sexual relations, as Paul would would define it, and that textually he would define this as any sort of physical intimacy outside of the marriage union now, as reasonable men and women we fully understand the distinction between touching that is appropriate and touching that is not. And this is the line that Paul is drawing. The line where one crosses from physical contact to physical intimacy. Crossing that line from physical contact to physical intimacy. He says though in verse 2, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication... Let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. So Paul is stating that it is good, that word meaning right or virtuous or acceptable, for members of the opposite gender to abstain from any physical intimacy whatsoever. But Paul does live on planet earth. He's a man. He understands human nature. He fully understands it's unreasonable for him to say, No man or woman should ever be physically intimate with each other. Humans have an inherent desire for physical intimacy. And so he says that if physical intimacy is a temptation for you, you have one and only one solution that will enable you to fulfill your desires for physical intimacy as well as be in full fellowship with the Lord. Fulfill your desire for physical intimacy without falling into sin. And that one solution is marriage. Get married. Any physical intimacy, any touching of the opposite gender that goes beyond the line of physical contact and becomes physical intimacy is dangerous and inappropriate outside of the marriage. I say contact. That should be context there. I apologize. Outside of the marriage, context. Why is that? Because when you engage in physical intimacy, sexual intimacy is right around the corner. You're setting yourself up for failure. And by the way, you're giving something to them that you have no right to give to them because it's God's. It's not yours to give away to anyone. It's yours to give away to your spouse. So get married or to no one because it's God. And so, because this failure is possible, in order that this failure would not be realized, this failure of falling into sexual immorality, Paul says, those who are tempted in this area, whether man or woman, ought to marry. But, you know, marriage is a commitment. Did you know that? Marriage is a real commitment, isn't it? Marriage is not just about physical intimacy. There's a whole lot more to it than that. I uh, just started last night with marriage counseling for a couple. I get to perform my first wedding ceremony this summer. Uh, a young lady and a young man that uh, worked for us when we were down in uh, Pensacola are getting married this summer and they've asked me to officiate the ceremony. So I get to officiate my first ceremony this summer. It's an exciting time. I'm excited about doing it. Uh, but I got to start marriage counseling with them last night. There's a lot to talk about when, when you go into marriage counseling. Last night we talked about love and submission. Next week, we're going to talk about communication. The week after that, we're going to talk about forgiveness. The week after that, we're going to talk about getting along, blind spots, baggage that you might carry into a relationship that you don't even really think about. But you know what? That's something I do that they're going to have to get used to. There's so much about the marriage relationship that is involved. That There's so much interaction. There's so much learning. There's so much deference. There's so much servitude. Marriage comes with commitment. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul stated that we are joined to the Lord at the moment of salvation. That joining is a commitment that you and God have made to each other through Jesus Christ. That when you accept Christ as your Savior, you are accepting that which God's Word has to say. His Holy Spirit is placed inside you. You have God in you. You are God's. God is yours. Now, Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 6 was not to take that which is God's and give it to another through, physical, through that physical union. In contrast, when you enter into marriage with another through a lifelong vow, you are still spiritually capable of giving yourself to that person without spiritually damaging your relationship with the Lord because God sees you too as one. Because God sees you too as one. Several weeks ago now, My wife and I went ice fishing for the first time. It was a good day. It was a cold day, but it was a good day, windy day. Now, we're not typically fishers. We don't know a lot about fishing, and we didn't have fishing licenses. So my wife and I went out before we went fishing in order that we could fish with the blessing of the state and got fishing licenses. Now... The fact that I had a piece of paper in my pocket that I had paid an exorbitant amount of money for that let me fish for 24 hours really changed absolutely nothing about the experience. It didn't change my ability to fish. It didn't change my understanding of fishing. It didn't change how well I did my success in fishing. It didn't change my knowledge of fishing. The only difference between having a license And not having a license was that this license gave me the blessing of the state for my fishing. I was within the law as I fished. Now, the analogy is not perfect. But practically speaking, particularly in our culture, marriage doesn't inherently change anything about my relationship with another person, does it? I mean, I can have the same amount of commitment, the same amount of love, and I can do all of the same things except maybe uh, when it comes to tax season, all of the elements of what my wife and I do as a married couple could, on a broad level, surface level, be done outside of the marriage vows. But in the eyes of our authority, and by the way, I'm not talking about the White House, I'm talking about this. In the eyes of our authority, the difference is dramatic. Just like having a license in my pocket is the difference between catching fish illegally and catching fish legally, so too, entering into the marriage covenant is the difference in God's eyes between defiling the temple of God that is in you through the Holy Spirit or honoring the temple of God that is in you through the Holy Spirit as you engage in physical intimacy. Now, I remind you what we talked about last week, and let's dig a little bit deeper into it. Physical intimacy is not the seal of marriage in the eyes of God. A vow of lifelong faithfulness is the seal of marriage in the eyes of God. This is uh, confused uh, in, in Christian circles and secular circles alike. And as a matter of fact, I had someone come up to me several, several months ago, and when you come up and ask me questions, even if it's been several months, Believe me, I don't forget these questions. Uh, They're still bouncing around there in my mind. I want to answer the question. I'm just thinking ahead, thinking, okay, when will be a good time to benefit the entire uh, family of, of Christ here with these answers? And this question was posed to me. And you know what? I really didn't have a very good answer. I really, I had thought about it, but I kind of left it with a, you know, that's something I'm going to have to look into one day because I really don't know. And then praise the Lord, we're doing this First Corinthians study. I'm studying ahead and here it is, right here in black and white, the answer to our question. That physical intimacy does not is not the seal of marriage in the eyes of God. A vow of lifelong faithfulness is the seal of marriage in the eyes of God. And this concept is essential to understanding what Paul is telling us Through this chapter, in order to strengthen this idea, we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 224 and we're going to to dig into this just a little bit deeper. Genesis 224 is where God instituted marriage. And it says this, "...therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh." Now this verse, coupled with Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians 6.16, which we looked at last week, about two becoming one body in a physical union, have brought uh, many to a place where they believe that the physical union is what constitutes marriage in the eyes of God. Because Paul clearly says in 1 Corinthians 6.16, "...what know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh." So you can become one body with a harlot. So marriage in the eyes of God must be consummated through physical intimacy. And do we not see examples of this in the Old Testament as well? Genesis chapter 24, verse 67. Isaac sees Rebekah coming on the camel from Laban. And when he sees her, the verse says, and Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And so we can see, seem to see, again, an implication here that it was the physical union that brought about the marriage between Isaac and Rebekah. And so we're seeing a lot of implication here. 1 Corinthians 6 can lead us to believe that physical intimacy is that one flesh union uh, this passage, we don't see a marriage ceremony, so it can lead us to believe that the physical intimacy um, is the union. However, these are just inferences, folks. We are, we are assuming things that we don't necessarily know is true. How do we know Isaac did not vow anything to his wife? How do we know that there were not vows performed first? Certainly, when you come together in physical intimacy with a harlot, that you are becoming one flesh for a time, quite literally and physically. And yet, is that the condition that Genesis chapter 2 tells us? Uh, No, we talked about that last week. That Genesis chapter 2 tells us that you are going to leave and you are going to cleave. And when you leave your father and mother and you cleave unto your wife, that's when the marriage is understood. There are many, there have been several times in Scripture where we've seen married people before any physical intimacy takes place. In fact, the first man and woman... In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, uh, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and they were considered husband and wife in Genesis chapter 2, though we don't see any physical union until Genesis chapter 4. Also, Mary and Joseph, did not the scriptures specifically state that he took Mary to be his wife and that he did not have physical intimacy with her until after Jesus was born? So was she his wife or was she not his wife? Well, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife. So in other words, they were betrothed, now they're married, and he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. So if we dig down to the least common denominator, if we set aside what we're inferring from the text, we can assume this and we can assume that. When we look at what the text is saying, we indeed see a tremendous allowance for the reality that marriage comes from vows, not from physical intimacy. And this should be a freedom. There are those in this room. There are those under the sound of my voice listening on the internet. There will be those that we'll have in our church someday that indeed were, were intimate physically with someone before they were married. And the, the thing that might be bouncing around in the eyes of these, or in the eyes, not hope the eyes are bouncing around, but in the minds of these folks is, am I married to that first person? I don't even know where they are anymore. I don't know what's happened to them. I don't even know their last name. Am I married to them? No, you're not. You're not. That's not the condition upon which. Now, you did unite with them. It was wrong but you're not married to them, according to the Bible. Marriage is when you leave your father and mother and you cleave unto your spouse, and through those vows, you commit one to another before God. That's marriage. And so such examples in Scripture of a marriage being consummated through physical intimacy are not sufficient. On the contrary, the Bible is quite clear in teaching that marriage is about a personal commitment, not about a physical union. Now, notice carefully what God said in Genesis 2.24. The process of marriage as established by God is when one man cleaves to one woman and those two purposefully join their bodies, hearts, and minds in one direction for as long as they live. Just like a child is deeply connected to his parents for every facet of their lives, now this man and this woman are deeply connected to each other for every facet of their lives. We already spoke specifically about how Paul had applied this concept in 1 Corinthians 6. That his point was that you cannot join yourself physically to a woman outside of marriage and not sin against your own body. Because this body is the temple of the Holy Ghost by virtue of your salvation. So Paul has no intention of stating that by entering into this physical union, you are by default married to them. Rather, when you enter into this physical union with one who is not your spouse, for that time you take away from God that which is His right, that is your body, and you give it over to someone who has no right to it. say, Pastor, I know you've said this already. I know, I've said this already. I'm going to emphasize it though. We're, we're, We're going to talk about this because this is important stuff. When is the joining of a man and a woman in physical intimacy virtuous in the eyes of God? When can two join in physical union without sinning against the temple of God which is in them? Hebrews 13.4 tells us this, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. When two come together in physical union, having left the umbrellas of their parents' protection through their blessing and vowed to form a lifelong union with one other person of the opposite gender, then the physical union between those two people is blessed in the eyes of God and can be enjoyed without offending the spiritual union between you and Christ as believers. It's a divine exception. It's really what it is. This is the context in which you are free. In this regard marriage, one man, one woman for life. So verse four, Paul says, "The woman hath not power of her own body, nor does the husband have power of his own body." These vows come not just with the privilege of physical intimacy, but with the obligations of physical intimacy. In First Corinthians 6, Paul mentioned because of our spiritual union with Christ, we are not our own. We are bought with a price and therefore we are obligated to live within the bounds of our willing obligations to Christ. Now, so too it is with marriage. When you vow yourself to your spouse, in the eyes of God, you are giving yourself to that person so that, in a manner of speaking, they own you. They have the right to you. Now, from a cultural perspective, what I just said is lunacy, isn't it? From a cultural perspective, what I just said is crazy talk. Just, just put on the, the um, straight jacket and throw me in the white truck and get me out of here. But this is the reality of marriage. See, modern marriage demands freedom and minimal obligation, Separate possessions, separate bank accounts, separate bills. I will marry you, but I'm keeping my schedule, my friends, my priorities, my money to do with what I want. That's absolutely unbiblical, folks. It's absolutely unbiblical. Paul states very clearly here that when you make a vow in marriage, you are theirs and they are yours. 100% of you is your spouse's. 100% of the woman is the man's. 100% of the man is The woman's. It's not a 50-50 proposition. Marriage is not 50-50. It's not, I'll give my half, you give your half, and we'll meet somewhere in the middle. It's not, you better hold up your end or I'm not going to hold up my end. That's not marriage. Marriage is, I am going to do what I have vowed to do regardless of how you act. And then the other way around as well. The husband is going to do what he has vowed to do, which is to love and to cherish and to provide for his wife even if his wife is not given anything in return. 100% 100% to her. The wife is going to give 100% to her husband. She is going to vow to love and to submit and to, and to follow her husband 100%. Even if he's not given anything in return. 100% to him. That is marriage. See, a vow, that the vow that you made, Lord willing, on your wedding day was not conditional. You didn't say, I will love and respect and honor my husband as long as he's pretty good to me. As long as he keeps me satisfied. As long as he stays employed. There were no conditional clauses or there shouldn't have been. And the husband didn't say, I, I promise to honor and cherish and love my wife as long as she listens to me. And as long as the house stays clean. And as long as... What I say goes. That wasn't a condition. It's I am vowing to you to do something for you because I love you. Because love is an unconditional choice to do what is best for the one who is loved regardless of self-interest, regardless of circumstances. You didn't get married so that they could serve you. You got married so you could serve them. Or at least you should have. Because that's marriage. Marriage is me looking at my wife Sarah and saying I love you I love you so much that I want to pour myself out for you. I want to give myself to you. I want to be as much as I can for you. It's not, I want you to serve me for the rest of my life, so I'm going to marry you. It's not marriage. I'm obligated to my wife by my vows of lifelong commitment. Now what does this not mean? We've talked about what it means. What does this not mean? This does not mean that either spouse has any right to abuse their spouse. It doesn't mean that. Based upon context as well as other passages relating to marriage, particularly Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 to 33, any sort of emotional or physical abuse is completely outside the scope of God's design or God's allowance or God's desire for marriage should never be in marriage. This does not mean that either spouse has any right to expect unreasonable or undesirable things in marriage. Marriage is not designed to be a medium through which we fulfill our unreasonable whims or desires or whatever. It's not for me to sit on the couch eating potato chips and watching TV and turning my wife into a slave. It's not marriage. It's not for her to sit on the couch eating potato chips and watching television while she turns me into her little um, pet gopher. To go do all the cho- chores. Go for this. Go for that, right? Go for whatever I want. That's not marriage. Marriage is a partnership where each spouse is seeking the absolute best for the other regardless of self-interest. Marriage is loving one another. If you're seeking your own best interest at the expense of your spouse's contentment, happiness, health, or comfort, you are in violation of your responsibility before God and you need to repent of that and you need to get right with God and then you need to get right with your spouse and then you need to start doing what you're supposed to do in your marriage, fulfilling your marriage vows. Verse 5 says this, Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency or inconsistency, So Paul states in verse 5 that the husband and wife must not defraud one another physically. Now that you have this means by which you can be physically intimate without falling out of fellowship with God, you have no right to defraud one another of that physical intimacy. The whole reason why that physical intimacy is there, the whole reason why it's allowed in marriage is so that you can fulfill this desire in a way that is right when you are willingly withholding that from your spouse, you are placing your spouse in an area of temptation where they will be tempted to go and find satisfaction somewhere else to find satisfaction because they ought to find it with you. Now the exception to this command is when the two of you have agreed for a time for spiritual purposes to withhold from yourself various bodily pleasures or needs so that you can give yourself to fasting and prayer. So, if you're fasting, you withhold yourself from things like food and water and other bodily needs. You're withholding the cravings of the body in order that you may dedicate yourself to a spiritual purpose. And Paul says, by all means, during that time, for a time, a set time, a short time, you may deny one another for those reasons. But other than that, it's only a temporary exception. It's designed to end so that Satan has no means of tempting us through our physical appetites. And really... The marriage covenant ought to relieve a great deal of that temptation, particularly um, in the hearts of men. Verses six and seven say this: He says, "Your glory's not good, know ye not? Oh, oh I'm, that's not it. Let's get on chapter seven. Let's not let that page turn again. Verses six and seven of chapter seven says this. But I speak this by permission, not of commandment. For I would that all men were even as myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this man or another after that. We'll talk about this more in the weeks to come. But in verses 6 and 7, he's saying that this is all by permission, it's not by commandment. If Paul had it this way, no Christian would get married. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? That Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that. Now, we're going to look, and we don't, don't get too concerned over that. We're going to look in weeks to come as to why Paul says this. And it's not just a blanket statement, no Christian should be married. But, as, uh, as he continues in the epistle, he'll make it clear. Paul is not anti-family. He's not anti-marriage. Uh, he has, however, experienced the spiritual benefits that accompany those who do not have physical and material constraints and obligations. So we'll talk about that later. But that's what he's saying. He's saying, I would that all men would be as I. I'm not married. I, I wish all men could be as I am. But again, he lives on this planet. He knows that's not the case. However, he does address the unmarried in verses 8 and 9. He says, I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them that they abide even as I. That would be unmarried. But if they cannot contain, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to Burn. Burn in what? Well, um, face God's judgment, uh, burn in temptation. Lots of different theories out there, but it's better to marry than to fall into the sin of fornication. If fornication is not a temptation for the unmarried or to the widow, Paul says, if you can make it through day in and day out without being tempted to have physical intimacy with another outside of the bonds of marriage... He says, let them abide even as I. Let them stay unmarried. It would be good for them to do so. But if they cannot, it is far better for them to marry than than for them to be under constant temptation to sin or to fall into sin. Now, my teaching today has kind of stepped on the toes of my application. So the application will be brief, though there are several points. Some of these points will be a little bit of a rehashing of last week's points. Again, I believe this is very important stuff. And so let's rehash it together. Number one, every Christian is God's in body and in spirit. Paul established this last week. We taught it last week. Let's remember it this week. Every Christian is God's in body and in spirit. If you are a born-again believer, you are God's. Your body is God's. Your spirit is God's. It's not that his, your spirit is His and your body is free to do whatever you want. No. You are God's. Body, soul, spirit. You're God's. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Your spirit is inextricably linked to the Holy Spirit that is in you. Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, All are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Different context, but the purpose remains. This reality secures our inheritance, establishes our hope in the resurrection of the dead. It gives us a reason to live. Because we are Christ's and Christ is God's which means God will raise us up in the last day. And this same reality is the reason why we ought to be faithful to God today. Second, as God's you have no right to give your body to another in physical intimacy. If you are Christ's and Christ is God's then you are God's then God has your body. You have no right to give yourself to another. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 Paul says ye are not Your own. And then he would go on to say, therefore glorify God in your body and spirit, which are the Lord's. Now we looked at many passages that covered these verses last week. Let's go to one more. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I know it's a little small. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ on high. Excuse me, with Christ in God. For When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake, the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Because you are God's, because He's bought you with a price, because you are owned by Him, Kill your flesh. Let it die. Don't give into it because your life is hid with Christ on high. Mortify the wicked deeds to kill them. But we are still human. And we are still susceptible to very strong physical cravings of intimacy with the opposite gender. And so God has made provision for us through marriage. That's point number three. If you cannot resist the desire for physical intimacy... God has provided marriage as a God-honoring means of physical intimacy. Now, this was not the exclusive reason for creating marriage, but it is the manner in which God has ordained this craving to be satisfied. The bottom line is that we need to live a life free from sin. And that God has given us the means in every context to live a life free from sin. And marriage is a part of that gift. If you need to be married to stay free from the sin of fornication, then you need to be married. If you don't need to be married, well then you've got options. You need to take Paul's words and start bouncing it around in your head a little bit, prayerfully desire or decide what the Lord would desire for you and we'll talk about that more in the weeks to come. That being said, uh, application point number 4, marriage is defined by mutual lifelong vows, not physical intimacy. At no time in history was a person married in the eyes of God because he entered into a physical union with a woman outside of the vows and the intent of lifelong marriage and commitment. Marriage is defined as leaving and cleaving. Leaving the authority, protection, and support of one family in order to form a new family which is absolutely devoted to one another in love and determined to pursue A unified vision of life and godliness. And finally, principle which we will reference in the weeks to come, so please don't get too concerned. If you are able to resist the desire for physical intimacy, there are certain advantages spiritually to remaining unmarried. And there are. Flexibility. Opportunity to go places. uh, we'll, We'll talk about it in the weeks to come, but I tell you how many times I've thought, boy, I wish I could go down and talk to the crackheads in the back alley somewhere in the dark in the middle of the night and give them tracks and seek to win them to Christ. But you know what? That's probably a calling for someone that doesn't have a wife and a family. That's probably a calling for someone that doesn't have a family to support. And so there are some constraints upon my ministry. There are other opportunities that it opens up, of course but there are some constraints upon my ministry because I'm married. And there is flexibility and opportunity that can come from being unmarried. So we'll talk about that in the weeks to come and understand better how it is we can serve the Lord, whether married or unmarried, in both our body and our spirit. Let's close in prayer.